Hello and welcome to Dowdy, the podcast where me, Mariana Feijó, talk to my guests about the concept of bravery, or braveness, even just the moments where folks have been slightly out of their comfort zones. This week I will be brave, because I'm going to say live here while being recorded that for next week's episode I will have a new intro and outro thingy that I haven't recorded yet that I have been putting off recording because I've just been busy and for I don't know how many weeks in a row it's 11 p.m. before the release date of the episode and I'm still not done. (laughs) So yeah, saying it here for all of you to listen to makes it a promise I can't break. I will keep this intro very short because it's late, the window is open because it's very hot outside and the kids have just started cackling and that may show up on the recording and I also have an early day tomorrow because I'm going outside London. I'll be in like a proper train for the first time in many months. This episode starts as Dowdy always does with my guests Suchandrika Chakrabarti introducing herself. My name's Suchandrika Chakrabarti. I do as many jobs as I can but I'd say the main ones are freelance journalist and now comedian and comedy writer and what should people know about me? Well I'm quite new to the industry of comedy I suppose I started in January 2020 but I will say I have probably been funny before then (laughs) and um, like occasionally but then also things I've done in journalism like I've had to just stand on a stage and just talk without much notice like those things were really helpful when coming to comedy and you know when I started out other people they're like oh have you done this before it's like no but I think there are things we can take from our other careers if we've had them before that really prepare us to do this um so in that way at least journalism has been somewhat helpful yeah I don't know if I've said is in a podcast before but I work for Funny Women which is a company that every year does these awards for amongst other things stand-up comedians and the winner two years ago was Laura Smith Mm. who's a teacher and she hadn't been doing stand-up for that long but she had the stage presence and a way to talk to people from teaching kids so yeah definitely those skills are transferable and you can be a natural a speaker <laughs> and just add jokes to it and you're it's really interesting you mentioned laura and teaching because i also teach that's another thing that i do so i've been doing lots of teaching over zoom so the kind of things i teach are like like digital storytelling skills like i do a creative writing one which is writing personal essays which you know if anyone who wants to write you don't have to want to but if you do that's kind of the first rung of writing for journalism because the material is in your mind it comes from your past and you don't have to report on anything you don't have to get into interviewing other people and so like that's one part of it but then I do like SEO training and social media and all kinds of things because people need journalistic skills now because everyone can publish themselves and what what really made me think I could do my show because this will probably get into I've jumped into doing an hour show this year which is brilliant <laughs> but um what convinced me I could do it is I do this three-hour personal essays class and in it um the person who's my facilitator said oh you really manage people's emotions through it so personal essays are often about oh, like you know a really painful moment in a person's life that's changed them and they're looking back over that and understanding it with hindsight it doesn't have to be you can have really humorous personal essays and um, there are lots of there's like women com- the women's comedy prize I think for like comic novels um so what I do is I start with a kind of comic essay that 
I responded to a call out for pitches. I got the commission and I get people to do it in a little task. And they come out of their breakout rooms on Zoom giggling and they've spoken to each other and they've broken the ice. They're still like, what has this got to do with my, you know, my essay about my divorce I want to write about? And it's only later on we get into that kind of stuff. But for me, it's really important that people's moods sort of like, they don't get thrown into, oh God, everyone's what the most like bleak moments of their life. And I'm in this Zoom. I don't have that level of trauma or... um that that isn't what I've come here to talk about or I don't know what to do so to ensure that everyone's kind of like gently led in that's what I'm trying to do with the show as well because I want to talk about grief I want to talk about things that don't lend themselves to comedy that easily but I think if you lead people in but and also if you look at the absurdity of certain experiences and that's the way to kind of guide people in I'm, I'm not here to shock people into trying to feel something or understand something yeah how would you define bravery yeah it's really interesting I was thinking about this so I have an interesting relationship to the word brave. Um, before we we did this, I sent you some reading. So things that people don't often know about me, because it's obvious is that my parents died pretty early in my life. So my mum when I was 16 and my dad when I was 19. And so that in itself was a reason for people to call me brave for quite a long time. Like while it was happening in my 20s, now I'm in my 30s. And I hear it less now. Now I hear it about stand up a little bit, which I'll get into because I think that's really interesting <laughs> that it's seen as brave. But what I found with the term brave especially when it's used around grief and especially I found older adults did not know what to do with someone who was barely 20 who had lost more than they had you get you know you get people in their 40s and 50s who might have one parent that's not abnormal so to to meet someone 19 20 who had all this loss I think it often put people on the back foot. I don't know what to do, I don't know what to say. So I found the word brave was often used to shut the conversation down. People were telling me who and what I was because they didn't want to hear the process I was going through. Not that I'd necessarily be telling them, but they didn't want to know what it was like. So they just, only oh, you're brave. And it can be very othering when you use it in that way. You're brave, it has a subtext, I'm not, I couldn't take all this pain. You're made differently. And I think that's a really dangerous yeah. way to go about things, isn't it? Because you go down that road and it's just separating people into, well, you can take this, you were born to, you just have more. And that feels that feels wrong to me. I feel, as say, bravery has been used in my experience to take a situation that had no choice involved and to place choice onto it. So I don't think it's the word in itself that's an issue, but it's how it's been used. It's a kind of pat response to grief. And I know that people find it hard to know how to respond to grief, particularly the situation I had. And I'd say go with an I'm so sorry, as opposed to putting a value judgment on the situation, because that makes it worse. It's an outside assessment. You're so brave. Didn't have a ton of choice. Wasn't thinking about how it was coming across. It was none of those things. It's about lack of choice and not being different to people and not having extra reserves of bravery. It was just, well, I have to keep putting one foot in front of the other. I have to keep living and keep doing this. But what you've just said to me makes it kind of magical creature. And I think people also do it to think there's a line between you and me and it couldn't happen to me as well. Mm-hmm. Well, they're really brave. They've gone through all of this stuff. That's happened. But like, you know, oh, I can't think about my parents dying. So like, let's just put her over there and we'll, we'll come over here. A word that I've preferred is that sometimes people have used the word courage. And I would say they're not semantically like massively different words. I did an English degree. <laughs> just so you know (laughs) I did an English degree and I love words and I used to read so much before the internet ruined me and everyone else and (laughs) ruined my attention span right 
and uh, courage is a little bit different and I'd say yeah semantically pretty, pretty much the same word but when someone uses courage oh um, you must have a lot of courage or resilience I feel they've thought about it they've put themselves in my shoes this is me at 2025 not me anymore really and I feel like they've thought about what it must have been like to be me because it is quite difficult to imagine that yeah. and to do that is to make yourself vulnerable to imagine perhaps your own parents dying imagine losing people you love so dearly and so that for me felt like that's building a bridge more so it's more in how they use the word than the actual word but for me bravery is a plaster over it I've I've assessed that you're doing well now let us move on what's the weather like today and um I feel like courage and resilience is thinking more about what does it take for this 19 20 year old girl or 25 or how much older I'd got to live through this like what is it like for you I've had to think about it no you don't have to they don't have to open up that conversation with me I understand it's terrifying um just in case people are listening to this and thinking I can take pointers on how to deal with people who are grieving I mean like number one respond to the person grieving as opposed to just doing wholesale what I'm saying but I think where you can show that you've thought about what they're going through as opposed to this is a book of phrases I should be using that's always better so the word courage the word resilience I've always seen as a compliment because I felt as though those people have thought about what I'm going through how I have to wake up every day and do this what choices I'm making if I have any and yeah yeah so that's been my quite complex relationship with those two I had to really think about that this this week when we into this another way people many times use the word brave that has been brought up in a podcast before has to do with disease or illness whatever the disease is that affects their life and how much that that word is also thrown at them as you're really brave and both things are uh, things you can't you, it's not a choice right it's something that happened unfortunately to you it's something that you didn't want to happen to you right but you have to go be resilient i think resilient is the the word because you have to keep on going and all of that in your particular case is that you were very young when your parents died and yeah most of us expect it to happen later and most of us who were 18 19 20 know that we relied a lot on our parents around those ages we weren't an independent yet so there's something else of another word that I'm not sure if I'm using the right word because it doesn't sound good, but there's something else that resourcefulness uh, comes to mind because you were able, I, I didn't know you at the time, so I don't know how your life was, but you were able to make those choices on your own independently, I imagine, without the support from your parents who in most of our lives were present and helping us through those doubts. Is that a correct assessment? Yeah, I think so. You bring up the the use of the word bravery in terms of cancer, because I think it's on one of your other podcasts that you talked about this. And it's, it's really worth revisiting because people do use it around cancer and other kind of long-term illnesses, terminal illnesses. And that kind of war metaphor you've talked about before, which I thought yeah, is really important. And again, it's othering. So I think when someone has yeah. cancer or a terminal illness, again, those of us who don't might be tempted to draw a line and be like, oh, I'm on this, oh God, I'm on the life side of the line. Everything's okay. I'll wake up tomorrow as normal, live another 50 years. Whew. Mm -hmm. The person with cancer doesn't need to, to know that or hear that. They are well aware of that. They've just had it ripped away. Yeah. I, I've not had experience of 
illness thankfully touch wood but in terms of something that could be long term changes your life entirely you don't know when it will end and you don't know who the person will be at the end of it that's the experience i went through i didn't know that all these unknown unknowns at 19 and so there was an othering sense and i wouldn't say it came from people my age people my age generally were like let us not speak of this <laughs> And looking, it was very hurtful at the time, but looking back, we were emotionally children, so that's not surprising. But it was surprising from people who were the age of my friend's parents, the age of my parents. And I think what it was was a bit of a memento mori. I reminded them of their mortality. Yeah. My parents were, and my dad was 61, my mum was 52. So not, not old, not young, but they didn't see their children through really to for adult we think you know 30 minimum now and there's a reason we think of 30 as kind of adulthood is because the brain is only fully developed between 25 and 30 and so emotional maturity only kicks in between those ages and that was something that definitely helped me process grief plus it was five to ten years into at that time but i think when we look at someone who's 1920s i was you still see someone who's legally an adult but is a child and yeah i think it scared people and as you say people do kind of wonder how does she gather stuff together and just and then get stuff done yes yeah, so maybe there is something in that i couldn't feel any of that I, I kind of i really hated pity yeah which is like a human being hating water and i think it's gonna happen people are gonna feel that and and it's an interesting how opposed to it i was and also the word orphan so remember that um i took i took a term off from uni so my dad died in the easter holidays i took that term off but then i redid the year my second year because he'd, he'd had cancer he'd been ill and the time i was off the college secretary sent me a postcard which was very sweet and very um thoughtful and she she called me an orphan on that postcard i remember and it was like you know within a month of my dad's death and within a month of me being orphaned i suppose and it was just too soon and i just like fully rejected that's a term which has really interested me in years since because in December 2019, I joined a WhatsApp group called Young Orphans. I'm not in it anymore, um, but I was in it for a good year and a bit, I think. And I'd never met other people who'd been orphaned at a young age before. But why I left was because, firstly, I would say mine's like long-term grief. It's quite old grief. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people in there who are recently bereaved. And I sort of tried to be helpful, but I found it quite tough after a while. To... It's like, it's so intense and painful and one thing you can't tell people who have just lost two people in this case is that it gets better you can't they can't imagine it and actually it's very painful to them because the more it gets better the more time has passed the further they are from their dead parents so there's this weird paradoxical logic to it and also most of the people at the group are probably 30 something and losing their parents in their 30s which is still too soon i would say and not what we expect but that's a different very different experience to what i had and i'd start thinking about maybe i should explore how it's shaped me as opposed to trying to be a bit of a therapist to other people which nobody asked for and also that's something i do to avoid my own stuff is to be like oh i'll be a great unpaid therapist for you tell me your problems so that's why i left but there's nothing wrong with the group it was great but i think it was a real sign of acceptance i joined a group that was about being orphaned and met some of the people in it when we could it must have been before long no it was in the the last last summer so in between lockdowns so that was quite a step forward for me yeah Uh, but it shows that words have such power in that sense like these labels yeah people will give i'm kind of like no absolutely not that but over time i've really changed and come round to some of them except the word brave 
Uh, I still don't really like it. And you think because it's also then exactly as you were saying, it's the way people use the words and the word orphan is used a lot in literature and maybe the stereotypes of the orphan in literature mm-hmm. is not something you like to be associated with besides the all rest of the meaning of the word and the fact that you are grieving and maybe having that reminder all the time also makes the grief bigger. Besides the fact that people would call you brave, are there other associations you have with the word that make you dislike it? <laughs> so when I did when I started doing stand up, brave came out of, of the woodwork again for a really different reasons. So I think in a way I came to stand up quite late. So um When I did the course at Bill Murray in January 2020, I was like 36, so a little bit older than your classic comic. But I would say that why I've brought up my parents in this podcast is that it's impossible to understand me and why it took me so long to get to something creative, which I'd always like to have done, if not to understand that grief also kind of stole on my creative powers in a sense. If you're thinking about mm-hmm. processing the loss of people you love, it's a really philosophical thing to do. And it's something that takes the imagination because they are, the whole point is they're not there. And the whole point is you have to construct a narrative that you can live with and that you can tell other people eventually when the time comes that you have to do that. So it's a hugely imaginative thing and it takes all those powers up. And so, you know, straight out of an English degree, I wanted to write, I wanted to do everything, but it just wasn't there. It just wasn't coming. So I came to it quite late. And it's a bit like a second act in a way, because a lot of my friends are going off and having babies and settling down. I'm like, no, I need to do this creative thing and see where it takes me. And um, so I did this course at Bill Murray at six weeks, really loved it, um, really enjoyed the course and in stand up. And it culminates in this a showcase. So it's like a Sunday afternoon. But the thing with the Bill Murray is, I don't know if you're quite familiar with it like yeah. it's a two-room pub in Angel so it's got like a bar and then it's got a proper you're transported to New York 1960s underground blackout yeah, blinds it's a good description <laughs> it's great it's like your classic comedy club and um, this is a bright sunny Sunday in February 2020 and um, good setting for a film like we didn't know the pandemic was coming our way we did know we just have a government that didn't want to do anything about it uh, sorry that's for another podcast but denial <laughs> we had a lot of denial and um it's on this bright sunny day with the black light blown blackout blinds down and it is like dark it somehow feels smoky even though it's not and it's really exciting it's exactly the the right conditions for stand-up people squashed in together all your friends and family come along it's really great it's really fun and um so when up i was first my friends a couple of my friends had come along and they were bringing their baby there's gonna be some babysitting out in the barn i was like they forgot what pubs are like in central london but it was fine in the end they brought the baby in and i was like okay the baby heckled me amazing she didn't she didn't but um that's quite fun it wave into my sex my set is a lot to do with my niece who's a toddler and then um i don't tend to get really scared before i do public speaking which i i i don't i can't tell you why i i definitely believe that the audience wants to see they want to be entertained or informed or both by you so they want you to do well it's no fun for them if you don't do well and if someone doesn't want you to do well that means they're your nemesis and that's the same as having a crush on you so enjoy the attention so, <laughs> i'd love a nemesis um i don't know you have to internalize that belief and i must have done at some point when yeah. i was young but um coming off oh my god i got that come down it's like a real chemical like you've taken drugs come down and my friends who don't come they were so lovely about it but definitely that word brave was used and I, i think again it is a bit othering because it's from friends who would never get on stage and would never want to do it and i think that othering comes from their own well, it all comes from fear doesn't it othering always comes from i'm scared of this thing this person 
who has done it or is doing it it's it's a different creature to me but it also came from a place of having enjoyed the performance i just given so it was, i would say it's still the same thing it was still othering but it was from a positive place that i'd done something yeah. that had been enjoyable as opposed to when i lost my parents something was going on that terrified them and worried them and they did just like me they didn't know what the future would hold um so yeah still still it comes up still i'm not a fan <laughs> And it is, uh, in that case, in the case of stand-up, as you, you said, it doesn't scare you. Public speaking doesn't scare you. But even if it did scare you, it is another different kind of choice that has stakes to it that are not huge. So like when people do tell me that I am brave because I do stand-up and I do get nervous and all of that, but I, don't, I also don't think it's brave because the worst that can happen is not that bad is that someone will heckle or not laugh which is the worst the actual worst is that people won't laugh well the, the language um, around stand-up like dying on stage which is just what you've described yeah. dying on stage is not getting that laugh or if you do really well killing it is absolutely fascinating language it's so violent and it's so powerful like stand-up is really powerful that thing i mentioned about trying to control the emotions of the people in the room which is something I'm, I'm bringing over from teaching is something you're doing in stand-up or kind of those those solo shows those theatre performances and it's so interesting that this language of like you are dead but the thing is the point of dying on stage is to rise again you have to die at least yeah. once early in your career apparently so I'm overdue mine because uh, I've only performed live twice so I think that's what I'm doing in my hour shows I'm doing seven performances at two fringes this summer I'm gonna have to die at some point and it'll be excruciating so I'll probably have 45 minutes left to go but it has to be done because it's like falling over as a toddler if you wait until you're 10 years old to fall over you'll be terrified like riding a bike is the classic riding a bike exactly. as an adult you have the fear and it's so difficult as a child you don't have the fear plus you're much closer to the ground <laughs> so it doesn't hurt that much but yeah i find that language killing it and dying out there those two things those are the those are the two ends of the spectrum the best we can hope for is murdering the audience or, dying or they're us murdering again. us <laughs> the good thing is that you can you can rise again and do it again or just i guess if you give up <laughs> You're gone. <laughs> I listened to him, I think it's Munir Chihuahua on um, the podcast off menu. And he, he talked to someone who said, Are oh, you only know if you like stand up after you've done 350 gigs? And they said to him, No, you spoke to someone who hates doing stand up. And I was like, Yeah, I think 350 is too much. But do you think you, you know pretty much immediately if you like it? I think you must know immediately. From my experience, I knew immediately that I liked it. And, like, I have recordings of my first few gigs that I've, I don't know why, decided to look back at not that long ago. And it was awful. It wasn't funny. <laughs> people, I remember people being uh, supportive on everything and engaged and interested in what I was saying. But listening back at it, I, like, I, I'm not saying any joke. How did I think this was good enough to say out loud but the reality is that i keep kept doing it and i have never had like audiences hate me i think so maybe that's part of it but yeah my first few gigs weren't comedy and i thought yeah 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 i'm i'm doing it i i'll keep doing it i think it's hard to look back like, number one it's just hard to look back on your old stuff isn't it like it sounds as though you were concentrating on what you were saying which is probably what i would do if i look back but yeah. you, you can't capture the energy in the room. So from the moment you walked on, people start going like, who is this person? And they're kind of already like, 
finding that person funny or like like number one they want to find you funny and then also it would not take into account like how did you move across that stage everything from holding your microphone everything sort of adds to that and I think we find it hard to just watch ourselves physically especially I think maybe it's a female thing of we try to forget there's a gaze on us it's just like I've got clothes on I'm going out the door I look fine or or not for the last year but to like watch that is excruciating but I mean that the video of my performance is what it got me to the funny women uh, stage awards competition last year which is incredible um it's got me to a few other competitions and it's sort of changed things for me in terms of comedy um so we're not always our best critics there was clearly there was clearly something there I think I don't think people would keep saying or do you know we support you keep doing it if there wasn't some joy there at least yeah, I don't know. I think I think there's something as well to do with being engaging and to having like to saying something interesting that maybe people didn't hear from that perspective before that made it like an interesting an interesting five minutes for people. Not necessarily a funny or like laugh out loud five minutes for people. Maybe there were the occasional oh that's funny <laughs> but more like that than like laughing. But I'm I'm totally good with that i just find it funny that i thought at the time from my memory of the time that oh yeah yeah i'm i'm doing stand-up and i'm going to keep on doing stand-up because this is good (laughs) maybe that's maybe that's a good thing to be positive and i think also we underestimate how much storytelling is allowed so there is this feeling like i've written a joke the end of every third line let's say people are gonna laugh and sometimes they're spellbound sometimes they're like where is the story going i want to hear and that's okay too and i'm thinking with this you know i'm writing in one hour show now like i can't expect laugh 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 it's also not no 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 show will only have that one tone as well like any one hour show has to have light and dark that's why there's a 45 minute dead dad edinburgh show twist because Mm -hmm. people want to show they can do light and dark so there has to be storytelling and so i think we we do concentrate on the laughs where are they and actually if people are keeping up with us that's that's a huge compliment as well to the performance it's like they care they're interested they're invested they'll laugh when when we give them the laugh i suppose and yeah. so yeah it's it's a good thing i'm i'm a bit like that. i'm like where's the laugh where's, where's the laugh and sometimes the laugh hasn't landed like sometimes there's a joke that's not landed and i'm like do you know what maybe that gets cut maybe that stays in maybe it's just in that particular room they want to know what happens next like we talk about trying jokes out and trying sets out but the thing is it's always a different audience the next time so you can't ever know but you've got to take a general consensus like that fully didn't didn't land with anyone or like nobody had heard of that reference okay i'll, I'll move along <laughs> i'll like change that up yeah you said you wanted to be creative and write and whatever what made you choose comedy and stand up as the creative thing you that de- you dedicate time to because you know, one time was funny it was uh, it was so great <laughs> um, so I, i've always loved comedy growing up i think what's worrying is that growing up in the, in the 90s the noughties there's definitely no one who looked like me who did stand up but i didn't really care because i was so used to no one looking like me on tv there was one show um goodness gracious me where some people look like mm-hmm. me and even then the he- like it's a great show and it has one of the most classic sketches ever going for an english if you've never seen it please look it up it takes all the stereotypes of laddish drunken english people going for an indian uh going for a curry and flips it and it's it's perfect i think um but other than that it felt to me pitch somewhere between my parents generation and mine and somewhere between mm-hmm. people who were born here but not white and people who are immigrants 
I could, it, yeah, the rest of it didn't really, I was like, that's, that's me. So that was really interesting. But even then I still felt like, yeah, comedy, it's great. I need to give it a go one day. And then also I felt like my dad laid comedy traps for me. So a very funny person, loved like, have I got news for you? Like political stuff. And um, all through my childhood, when I was a kid, whenever we saw like monkeys or apes on TV, like in a David Attenborough documentary or something, he would say, oh, those monkeys are your cousins. Just as though it was fact, just so it's true. And I was like, ah, <laughs> like, as kids would when you tease a child. And then when I got to, got to about 10, like, I don't remember this, but he told me this. He said, oh, I turned around to him and said, well, that makes you a monkey's uncle. Oh, clever. <laughs> and he was like, finally, I've been like telling you this for years. Finally, you've made a comeback. So I think also, like in my family, my dad was like very dad jokes, very jokey jokes. My mum was more like storytelling. They weren't necessarily punchlines, but what she would do if we were on a train and bored, she would pick a couple of people from the carriage and like imagine what their lives were like. And so there was a lot of like banter humour. I've got an older brother as well. And yeah, like it wasn't 24-7 perfect and great, but it was, there was a lot of silliness, a lot of storytelling, um... A lot of like now you join in um, that my parents did anyway. And then getting into journalism as well, I'd say that's um, as a career, like in the newsroom, humour is a bit of like a status signifier. And so you might you come in on shifts and there'll be a ton of people there that almost like, what's it like, haze you a bit, like drop some banter about what's in the news. Like, it's a bit of like, have you heard the latest? Are you keeping up with stuff? Are you quick? Are you quick witted? So I say journalism itself, even though lots of journalists would never want to do stand up, they definitely use humour in a kind of weaponised way to keep their status in a room where you could be editor on Friday, but then be moved back to reporter on Saturday, because that's the shift you're on. And then your deputy on Sunday. So it's a constantly shifting kind of jobs there. But yeah, always, always loved comedy. What I'd say that got me to stand up specifically in January 2020s that I'd been hosting a couple of podcasts so my last staff jobs at the Daily Mirror so I worked there from 2015 to 18 and as well as being a journalist I trained people as well so I had to like learn Facebook live somehow and then show people how to do it and all that kind of stuff and when podcasts sort of became a big thing our editors were asking for us to pitch podcasts we had things like mirror politics mirror sport like all the sort of verticals that you would have um but I so I had an earlier life doing TV and film journalism in the noughties and one of the PRs at that time reached out to me and said oh um do you want to cover Black Mirror when it goes to Netflix so this is season three this is 2016 I was like oh my god yes so I got all the screeners early and got to do reviews and stuff I did this whole kind of SEO project search engine optimization just so like if someone wants to know something about episode one of Black Mirror season three it would link them out to like information about Charlie Brooker information about episode two like all that kind of thing and then that did well and it's really important in news organization to to do numbers to prove the project did well so next year the PR comes back and he says right you can have an interview Charlie Brickett and Annabelle Jones this time and I was like great and also could we make this a podcast because if, if you have them on one episode um we'll do like reviews of the other episodes only put it out once the show's come out that could do well and so that did do well it got a big listenership and we made 30 episodes until I left the mirror in 2018 and then after I left a bit freelance, I thought I'd make my own podcast, which is freelance pod. But what I've certainly found, um, because Black Mirror did quite well, I had to speak at a lot of conferences about it. And people kept saying to me, oh, have you, people who listened to it, would be like, oh, have you tried stand-up? Have you tried stand-up? So I think there's something around presenting people to associate with stand-up. Like, I wouldn't have said I was very funny on the Black Mirror podcast, but I, I know it well. 
and I think that's helpful. But there's there's something about that people feel the same skill set. And so um, when I went freelance, obviously it was just like let's find work and try and survive. Um, but I'd got to a point like late 2019. I was like, right, I want to do a comedy course. Like, I needed it. I felt to have permission for some reason. Yeah. I didn't know how the world worked at all. I didn't know who to ask. I was looking at stuff and then eventually found the Bill Murray one. And I really liked the idea of it being a home for comedy and being a place that comedians had kind of built themselves. Yeah. And then, yeah, that was it. So it was kind of a path through podcasting. Oh, and I, d- I did a live show, I suppose, as well. So at the London Podcast Festival 2019... I did a live version of my podcast, a okay. freelance pod, with my friend Abdul, who, um, it was about his journey from Syria as a refugee, which he'd done now probably seven or eight years ago. And he's also a stand-up amongst many other things. He's an academic. And he's he's quick and he's very on it. And I knew that, I think, I think part of a show when this, it's not solo, is knowing you have chemistry that person, knowing you've got a shorthand. Yeah. And like, I knew with him, like with a look, we could sort of say to each other, like, let's move on, let's do the next thing. I didn't want the show to exploit his experiences. It was very important to me that he told it the way he wanted to tell it. And that isn't necessarily retreading over trauma if he doesn't want to do that. And he didn't. But he, yeah. could, he could make dark stuff funny. I'll give you an example. Like, so for many reasons, he was um, a fixer for like media and so on. So he, his situation became very unsafe. And he, he knew he had to flee the country. So on his way to leave the country, he ended up sleeping in a post office for a while. Now, their post offices are like four stories high, huge buildings, nothing like the ones in the UK. He was like, oh, I slept on the ground floor. And I was like, oh, like, why on the ground floor? Where is everyone else? He's like, oh, there's this whole hierarchy in the post office and the family's got the top floor and it's about status. And I was like, God, everything is like even in a war, people find a way to have status in a post office. And he was really pleased with the fact he was using the, the landline phone on his floor because... Bashar al-Assad paid for that phone because it was like a public phone he was really pleased and so these are really funny stories and they give a kind of you know this dark humor like that you have to have to survive through this stuff it tells you so much about him without necessarily him having to show his any wounds he might have or any scars he might have but the audience who's going to come along to that kind of show is going to be really woke like kind of audience I would love very similar politics to me but they're going to be scared to laugh at a refugee They're going to be like, oh, no, we can't laugh at the refugee. He's he's very sad. And I'm like, that's doing such a disservice to him. It's the opposite. He doesn't want to forever be the sad little refugee boy. He's worked so hard to be more than that. And he is more than that. And I suppose I saw something in myself in that, right, as well. I want to be more than that orphan. I'm so much more than that. And so for me, I really felt I didn't script Abdul. He didn't need that. He's, he's off the cuff and great. And it's his story. But I just had a bit of a skeleton so that I was a straight man. And so I'd let the audience know, hey, I'm laughing, you can laugh. This guy's funny. Like, he's okay. He's okay. And then we did, we got the Life in the UK test book. Is that something you've had to deal mm-hmm. with? I haven't had to deal with it because I'm not a, a, a UK citizen, but I know of yeah, it. Yeah, you yes. know of it. And like, I've known people who have had to go through it and do the test. I mean, it's, it's an insane book. Rather than saying things like, how do I know I can use the NHS for free? If I cannot use the NHS for free, should I get into Like, real things. Also, as Abdul put it... Um, Tell people everyone uses the word loo in London for the word toilet. Like, no one tells you that, do they? Um, So just, like, practical things. But no, it's like, when was Henry VIII found dead? Or something even more stupid than that. There's lots of cultural stuff in it. And it's kind of Britain parading its past glories. So it's not very useful. So what we do is we'd read out a couple of these questions for the audience. It turns out there are a lot of people in the audience who would not 
born in Britain. So it landed really well with that audience. And then we gave them prizes. So it meant they could come up to us and it sort of broke that wall because I think with a podcast, with this capsule that goes in your ear and you feel part of the conversation, but then you switch it off and they're gone. With the live show, it's like, we've got to be interactive. We've got to be like, hey, you, you can laugh. You're laughing with us, not at us. Yeah. That's okay. You can answer these questions. You can talk. You can have comments. It's fine. Like, be part of this. Um, so I'd done that show. That was 90 minutes. And so I knew I could do a live show. I knew I could put one together. And I just thought I loved it so much. Why have I kept performing out of my life? Maybe maybe I should do something with this. But when I was younger, like, number one, certainly at school, I couldn't see a kind of performance that I fitted into. So, like, the Shakespeare plays weren't for me. Mm-hmm. Did we have a debating thing? I don't know if we had, like, an official debating thing. Well, also, I'm not musical enough, so I couldn't really do that stuff. But, like, stand-up or, like, that kind of thing wasn't a thing. And it wasn't a thing when I was at uni, whereas now you have the Chaucer Student Awards yeah. and things. So, for me to believe that I should give time to it, that it could be a part of a freelance life took a while like at first I thought this could be a hobby now I've made some money doing it I'm like okay let's do something with this but yeah it took me quite quite a while to get to that realization I suppose you did say something interesting that you may have now come across during your stand-up as well which is that idea that you have to give permission to the audience to laugh or you have to frame yourself in ways that will tell the audience it's okay you're safe like the thing I need to do at the start of every set is tell people I'm foreign and that's okay. I have an accent, but you are understanding me, so you will understand me for the rest of the set. If I don't say something like that, I do a joke with it. I do, I'm not just preachy. I do a joke with it. But if I don't say that, the audience will be considering all the time what's happening. Why does she sound different than everyone else that came before her? And that used to anger me a lot. Uh, but now I realize that it's just like part of it. Do you have to give permission to the audience for things? Have you come across that thing in your set? Do you know what? I haven't so far, but I'm really with you on the accent stuff. And I, I understand your anger. And I think that's a really valid response. And I saw it with... Um, so my class at the Bill Murray was a really varied class. It's from people, like people all over the world. Like it's the beauty of London. There are people from every corner of the earth come here, maybe only for a year or two, but they come to London. Like what, what an incredible place to live. Yeah. And I do find, I, I, we're just so used to such a narrow slice of the world, getting our media from America, England, that's it. And the south of England as well. As people, oh, did you ever find the laughs slightly lagging behind a bit ever or like no people understood fine i think people understood especially after i do say after i started realizing that if i told people yeah hey i'm foreign and that's fine they will catch up Mm. perfectly it's so easy to until then it's like yeah but then i know i know because i'm saying this as a foreigner who's like my my first language is in english but i know that happens to northerners whose first language is english and who have lived in the uk forever and that should be shouldn't have to go through that right yeah it's it seems ridiculous doesn't it and i find this with audio as well that you probably have too say you have a piece of audio that uh, is echoey or there's something going wrong you just say at the start of the podcast this is why it's echoey. We were in the press junk. It was in a hotel room. It had a high ceiling. And there is something to do with audio. I don't know why. If you set the parameters of what the... This is why the audio is the way it is. The people accept it. And it's like they shift their frame. They're like, she's from a different country, okay. 
But I find that really interesting. And I did find that people in my class who had accents that weren't Southern British accents did often say something to begin with and it made it easier. And that it's a shame, but I think it speaks to something deeper in the brain, um, which is a lack of exposure to varied accents if you are from the yeah. UK not even from the north of England yes I agree with you um it's incredible um I I haven't gone in for the explaining the name Sachandrika I just go with I am I do notice that non-white comics do often explain their non-whiteness um yeah. I don't <laughs> I pff, can't be asked pff, if that's a really political decision I just I, I can't I can't yeah, I've just, I know, so, yeah, I started noticing it in other comedians who aren't white. And I was like, oh, I've never thought of doing that. Why have I never thought? And I don't really have an answer. I think my accent is incredibly reassuring. It's like, we hear that every day. That's that's fine. She's fine. Um, I think the accent almost drowns out the brownness. <laughs> I don't know. It's it, one. What, that's some really interesting feedback from that show from the end of class show the second time i perform live in my life i do a lot of zoom stuff over the pandemic um but this is from like somebody else's friends who come along and they'd worked in comedy and they'd done directing and other things and this person said oh you're a very reassuring presence from the moment you come on stage and i was like oh that's that's the kind of feedback i need not positive necessarily or complimentary but like detailed like this is how you make yeah. people feel because people talk about high status low status now my thing would be i'd always want to be low status i think you have much more fun i mean high status you can always lose dignity i suppose and that's quite a british kind of humor as well but low status is fun because you i i don't know maybe it's a female thing maybe it's being a non-white woman but i'm used to being underestimated so it's super fun like start low start low you think i'm capable of nothing that's great because everything i do will surprise you yeah. so i think i quite like the kind of start underestimated but i'm possibly not coming across like that on stage so that's more what i'm thinking about um I, yeah i think i'm probably never gonna go on stage and explain who and what i am and, i mean I'd have, to, I'd have to explain the whole british empire to be honest with you yeah and then you'll <laughs> maybe just that will take a long time <laughs> maybe i will yeah um i can understand i totally understand why people do it the only thing i can between those two pieces of information like for some reason people find me and this is this is one person's opinion but they they were a director they worked with a lot of comics and um the other thing is this accent is so like i've heard that accent on tv that's fine like i'm always lulled to sleep by it I don't know. I also feel like it is anger making, right? Of course. All, all of those yeah. things, all of the, oh, I have to reassure people I'm a woman and that's fine. Yeah. I have to reassure people I'm not white and that's fine. I have to reassure people I have an accent and that's fine. Yeah. That's, all of that is very anger making. And also the fact that it may, may not have been the case and it may not be the case in many nights, but now you do have all people doing stand-up so stop being stop expecting that white man to be on stage and be able to welcome everyone with, as an audience member I, I agree with you that that'd be great but i suppose what we're looking at is what people were brought up with and so we're, we're looking at what people were watching 30 years ago and more if we're talking about all older audience members you know they were growing up in the 50s so you have to think about like who were the authority figures back then old white men or middle-aged white men the white men and yeah. that's what we're working with and that's okay so we can keep changing 
perceptions and also what kind of voices are they listening to is, is playing into this as well. Yeah, I mean, we're just not exposed to other accents in this country. We're barely exposed to other languages in terms of our media or entertainment. The UK sees itself as a as having cultural capital. And again, if you go back to the life in the UK test book, a lot of those questions are resting on like the cultural capital of past ages and also when yeah. the UK was an important power. And I suppose in the US it's the same thing, even more so there'd be more British accents they wouldn't understand. Um, so we're, we're working with conditioning from... <laughs> up years to 20 of, 30 yeah. years ago and also so, some sort of pride as well because i'm just thinking about eurovision thing and um i don't, can't remember her name but the woman who gave the punctuation for the uk um amanda Hogan, oh yeah yeah is that her name uh, who said something in french and something in german or i can't remember if those were the languages and then said oh i i think i said these in some languages i don't know what languages are something like that which is like oh you're proud that you are british you speak english and you don't speak any other language and you're proud of that and i think that's kind of and again not all british people hashtag not all british not all british people but i feel like that's a little bit um thing yeah we're proud to be if you look at the education system so um i did french and german at school german brilliantly because my older brother told me it was easier than spanish in what way also spanish so they, they're both useful in really different ways spanish has a great breadth across the globe it would have more countries where i could speak, speak it, and yeah. also in certain parts of the world people look at me and think my first language should be spanish same with my dad uh, people just thought he was Mexican that's fine and and I disappoint people so I was in um, Peru oh my god when was I there like 2015 or something and I was with my friend his family originally Argentinian but originally Italian and they look it so in Lima her city where she's from people are coming up to me and saying stuff like Peruvian Spanish is doable but it's it's still quite quick I'm not you know <coughs> I picked up a bit of Spanish um uh vocab over the years because it's like latin i did latin at school but um yeah i'm not good enough and she's like do you know what they're asking you and i was like no what's going on and she's like they're asking you street directions and people don't ask you street directions unless they trust that you that's it yeah are a local so i was like oh yeah. no because us two standing next to each other you look italian i look like i'm showing you <laughs> and that's that's fine that's an honest assumption there's no problem with that and in fact it's hilarious but um at that moment i remember my dad saying to me he disappointed lots of people in california when he went out to get chinese takeout and they're like oh let's try spanish and he's like i'm from london <laughs> and they were like oh so i was like i've done it i've done it again um so i think a little bit of spanish would just it'd just be nice to people when i'm in their country uh, so i have tried i have i have a similar thing because people don't believe i'm portuguese don't believe because uh, they expect they expect Portuguese people to be a little darker yeah. skin. There's just no and, one kind uh, of person. <laughs> yeah. I've had arguments with people on pubs <laughs> here in the UK that tell me, no, you're not Portuguese. And then my friend shows up. She's Portuguese. You're not. I am. Uh, but it happens in Portugal. It has happened a few times where people just come up to me and speak English with me. And I'm like... I'm Portuguese and one of the times that happened I had been living in the UK when I did Erasmus here for a year and I had just gone back and I was having trouble with like the ticket machine in the overground and this, the guy came up to me and asked me if I needed help in English and 
I answered in English because I have been speaking mm. in English for a year. And then my brain remembered, oh, wait, I'm Portuguese. Hey, guy, I'm Portuguese. I can speak to you in Portuguese. And he was like very surprised. So yeah, I do totally get that. I also should maybe speak German because that's what people think I am. Really? Just, yeah. this shows you just, how can people think you're a nationality from looking at you? That is madness. And also, it's so interesting you've had those experiences. I, I've had people try to guess my religion. It's insane. What do people get? Like, what, again, it's a power thing, isn't it? What, do you, what does someone get? Like, if they guessed my religion and this person guessed Muslim and I was like, so far so far like my parents like normally hindu i'd say they're agnostic i'm an atheist so it takes away the number one free will that you as a person have any free will and number two like why do they have to pin you down like a butterfly i've heard indian people are like this or portuguese people are like this how can you account for this entire country which has this really interesting rich history um you know, back in the day, Portugal sent ships out to the whole world. They had an empire, so in the same way that Britain did, same way that Holland did, the same way that France and Spain did. And so people have come to that country, people have moved. Like, you cannot tell from the look of someone anything. Accents can tell you a bit more, but look how yeah. um, hostile people are to accents, as you've yeah, noticed. Exactly. Like, what? It's, it's just giving you a bit more information. Like, if I ever want to know where someone is really from, which I very rarely do because it doesn't tell you that much about them, I might ask yeah. where they were brought up just because it might tell you something more about um, culturally, like, what they're into. But yeah. on it, you have to t- let people tell their own stories. And I think that's it. Like, that's the power thing. No, I'm going to tell you a story. You don't know, mate. Like, you've got no idea. How, oh my God, how can people be telling you you're German and... Yeah, it's it's very odd. And especially, I find it especially funny when they argue with me about That's bizarre. It's me. I know who I am. So Is it men? <laughs> Is it up. men? It's always yeah, yeah, men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah it's, it's men. This, it's always men. It's this weird thing. I, I think it's like they have a weird internal map of like women I've met from different countries or like you know <laughs> hot Latina women like tick and it's just yeah there's this like achievement yeah. and I think it's also that odd thing that I think they think they're flirting yeah, 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 yeah. and that I may enjoy it yeah <laughs> no by just fully yeah. questioning your entire existence next time existence <laughs> We've been talking for almost an hour and I haven't asked you, I'm really enjoying the conversation, but I also don't want to keep you longer than the time you have set up for this. So bringing you a little bit back to bravery, you don't like the word, so maybe you you wouldn't consider you were ever brave. So, you know, well, the two occasions we've talked about, so one occasion I'd know... Um, free will my parents died there was nothing I could do the other one was a complete choice and also it's a bit of a out there choice a bit later in life already have a career she's getting on stage what is she doing it's so late in life my friends are bringing babies <laughs> to heckle me <laughs> so so a second act so I think there's one the second time when people call me brave to do stand up I think that made me understand the earlier brave and the othering and it's people projecting their fear. So I think that's mm-hmm. what it is. That's what I have not enjoyed. And brave is the most used term in that family of words, which includes courage and resilience mm, and all of these system. all of these terms. Because as you know with English, if there's one word, there's 300 words for it. Of course. Uh, yeah, so I think 
actually doing stand-up and actually having people use brave again towards me made me reassess that brave earlier on in life and and made me judge those people a bit less harshly and understand that they were afraid and Mm -hmm. shocked and so shocked and afraid they didn't know how to cushion me from that it's a very honest response so i can't blame anyone for that no one was coming out to hurt me with the word brave i'm calling you brave but i, I think you're rubbish like no that it was an honest response of i'm shocked this is a lot i can't process it and it scares me it scares me to think i'll lose my parents i'm gonna call you brave we can put a lid on it and you seem to be doing okay i get i get that response and if i wasn't me and if i was 60 with grown up children and i came across me maybe that would be my response too so the word brave it's not in room 101 um i've learned to reassess it since i did stand up and yeah. understood that there there is a level of admiration too behind it uh, that admiration was hard to take for something i hadn't done but for something i am choosing to do and i'm older and find it easier to take easier to take compliments not taking compliments hurtful to the person giving it to you i suppose so at least in that sense, I will take one. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a compliment in there and it's easier to take for something I've chosen to do. Yeah. So it gets pulled out of room 101 at the last minute. Were there moments in your life that you, in which you haven't done stuff because you were... Afraid? Oh yeah, loads, billions. Um, anything to do with performance, I didn't do for my teenage years. Um, as I mentioned, I didn't know where performance would fit in. Like at a senior school, so at junior school, I was in all the plays. Um, at senior school, yeah, I didn't see where I would fit in. And then also I didn't want to sort of be more of a burden on my parents. So, you know, we grew up, I grew up in North East London, went to school like further into London. My dad worked in East London. My mum worked in like Canary Wharf. And so I, when I grew old enough to understand if I did after school activities, my parents didn't love me getting the tube home until I was a bit older, how much they would have to co- coordinate their lives across London to pick me up and get me home. So once I saw the machinery of that, I was like, oh, I really ruined my parents' day when I do extra stuff. And maybe I shouldn't have thought like that. Maybe that tells you a little too much that I took their problems into my shoulders and about family dynamics. But that is how I felt. So I kind of was like, the performance stuff can just go, I don't need to do that. And then over time, so I tried again at uni, but I was like grieving two deaths at uni. So I couldn't remember any lines because grief is very bad for your memory. Um... I was rubbish so I did like something in my first oh, my first term of uni just trying out doing theatre I was rubbish um so yeah I think I was I was afraid I put performance to one side I was like I love writing I'm doing a whole English degree I love writing writing's my thing I don't have to do performance I don't have to have it part of my life and then to admit I was wrong and I put it aside for all those reasons I think it's tough and to go actually love the attention <laughs> drink it up um performance actually i think makes my writing better so i'm also working on novel working on sort of prose things and part of what i'm doing the show is i'm really blocked with the novel but there's something around like reading stuff out performing it i guess because you have an audience so you're testing it aren't you that i find really helpful for editing so it's shown me a new way to write and edit edit myself yes i think performance i was actually very scared to admit i wanted it for a long time there's also something that i believe happens in your brain when you are saying the things you wrote out loud that sometimes your brain will make connections that it hasn't done before and that you will end up saying out loud while you're performing so maybe that will help your novel as well because maybe your brain will connect other 
details that you can use then to develop yeah i think so i think it's another development isn't it yeah is there anything in your future for which you will have to muster courage to be able to do oh my god doing it hour long show um <laughs> i think it'll be fine so i've got a show called i miss amy winehouse it's my first hour that i'm doing this year so it's a brighton fringe 8th and 9th of june so it's in two weeks still writing it but what from what i hear that's really normal yeah. and then um doing the camden fringe as well so i've got a five night run the camden fringe the third the 7th of August and so it is, it is about Amy Winehouse who was the same age as me she was six months younger than me and so when she died I remember that so vividly because my my birth year and death year were like flashing around on the news that's really weird when you're in your 20s you're like oh god but I I worked in Camden in my 20s partied there a lot and there was always this joke that I'd meet Amy on a night out and we'd just become best friends and I never did meet her so then I started thinking what you know what if I did make up that meeting and so it's become this kind of look at grief and celebrity and ghosts and holograms and there's a lot of weird stuff. Princess Diana's in there. Uh, my parents are in there, of course. Um, but I think my challenge is, can I put that stuff in, especially me and my parents and their deaths? And will people still laugh or will they be so consumed with feeling sorry for me that I can't change the tone? I don't know. That's a gamble. But I just feel if I don't challenge myself with those things, then what am I? doing so yeah we'll have to see but i've got music so if like, things get too sad i'll put on valerie so that's quite a happy song yeah. <laughs> and um and everyone everyone knows, how to everyone knows it <laughs> da, 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 da. i've got quizzes in it because i you know judging from the podcast the live podcast a quiz is always fun but i think it's about tying those experiences to what we've just been through the pandemic without doing a pandemic show because i don't i'm not sure it's well a lot of the people do what they want but I, i'm not sure it's possible to do a pandemic show but i think the things i want to talk about need to be linked to the pandemic and on friday friday just gone i was out at the pub for like the first time in so long and the theme just came together and i was like yes yes because i spent a lot of time like circling it like, i've got the idea i've got images i've got visuals but actually writing a script no that can wait i'm not ready and then when i sort of had the theme i was like this is how it relates to the present day now i can write the script so i'm actually putting words down i'm going to speak which is great i can't learn an hour's worth of lines so um i won't be talking all the way through it but um yeah i think it's about structuring it in a way that yeah you you know this thing repeats three times or whatever and yeah we're just gonna have to see how it goes but um you got you got to do these things that scare you in life. Yeah. I mean, again, what's the worst I'm that's going to happen? Are they going to run me out of Brighton? Are they going <laughs> to ban me from Camden? I mean, probably for the best. <laughs> if they did. <laughs> I do think grief relates a lot to the pandemic as well, because I think we're all grieving together the life we had before, right? And the thing you were saying about memory, I do feel like I'm. It's way harder for me to remember stuff and i keep getting confused about what I, what i was do was i doing next and that never happened to me so yeah the pandemic is a mess <laughs> yeah i think it's, it's just been i mean if we haven't even lost someone we're lucky but even within that frame you know it's it's been such a tough year for people and i think people need to understand what it is they went through and certainly at the start of the pandemic there are a lot of pieces out there saying this is like grief and at first i will say when i saw those headlines i was like then I thought look, I've got to take away what I know this is people's first experience then would it feel like grief and I was like 
yeah like the unpredictability not knowing what the future will look like having something taken away from you not knowing if it'll come back not knowing if you'll be the same I, th- I think that's the main one I don't think people are the same as they were yeah and there's a there's a loss there for that person you were who seems very innocent very happy-go-lucky compared to who you might be now and that really interests me I think that's like if you sort of peel away the layers of a topic you find that thread that you think it's serious yeah. but we can make jokes because we could do xyz with it and then you just have to see how it goes and yeah i'm putting my myself on stage for an hour just see how that works <laughs> is there someone real or fictional from your own life or just a public figure that you would use as an example of bravery or courage or whatever word you want to use yeah i think i'm gonna say my mom because she took a bet on my dad this guy who's just like well i, I live in england do you want do you want to do you get married and come over? And she was just like, absolutely, yes. Yeah. Like, what? Who does that? It's madness. And it could have gone terribly wrong, but she married the kind of guy who was like, oh, it's February in England. Your sari is not going to be warm enough. Let's get you some jeans. Let's get you a coat. Let's get you, what classes do you want to do? What do you want to work as? You can't sit home bored. And she could have married a guy who was the opposite, but she took a gamble and it mostly worked out. But then she had to come here, get the job, work in a library, realise that it was boring and then start teaching career and just like get up and do stuff and if she hadn't done that I wouldn't be here so I admire her for doing that in a time when women weren't expected to really do all that much so all her peers would have got university degrees my mom, my parents both grew up in Calcutta in northeast India and people of their class and their caste would have got university degrees the men would be expected to work women less so they're quite ornamental is part of what made them a good wife um, but she chose a path in life that was like moving to England, working, doing stuff, which I would say is more exciting, uh, but infinitely hard work. And being introduced to jeans at the age of 28 is like 70s jeans, no lycra. Yeah. I mean, if you have, sp- <laughs> I, I'm, I've, I've never worn a sari, but I imagine they're flowy. And yeah, if you live till 28 dressed in flowy clothes and you have to be put inside some jeans. I mean, that's some bravery. Oh. That's some bravery. Yeah. I'm sorry. What I'll say with saris is that I was, I was going to try and incorporate a sari into the show, but I'm not sure I will now. Because again, I don't know how much people want to participate and I would rather respect someone not wanting to participate, in which case it might be easier to not ask them this summer, but there are other summers. Mm-hmm. But yeah, my mum was sorry to school from the age of 13, so she was just at home with it. What I'd say is they are lovely. They look, they look great on all women, but do not step backwards. It's all over. It is all over. If you've worn a ball gown before, it's a similar thing. Uh, but yeah, going, going from drawstring waist, flowy situation, 70s jeans. No lycra, no forgiveness. Uh, she's a hero. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we are at the end of the podcast. The only thing, and you have done a couple of them, but to put them in a really neat box with a bow, do you have any plugs? Yes, I'm doing my first solo live show my first hour at Brighton Fringe and at the Camden Fringe in August so I miss Amy Winehouse is at the Brighton Fringe on the 8th and 9th of June and it's free you just need to get a ticket from the website um, I think for Covid safety purposes but it is free and that's at 6.45 at the Caxton Arms and then 3rd to the 7th of August I'm doing five nights if I miss Amy Winehouse at the Etc Theatre which is on top of the Oxford Arms on Camden High Street so it's part of the Camden Fringe and that's five pounds a ticket 
and in between those months I'll be doing a lot of spots so it's a whole summer of comedy <laughs> lined up and yeah just see just see where that takes me it, and it is fun I guess uh, to be doing I miss Amy at Winehouse in Camden right next to the places where she used to hang out so yeah I've literally got a google map of like this is where I worked this is where she would hang out the Holy Arms. How did we never meet? Um, so it's just going to be really therapeutic for me, I think. Yeah. Oh dear, bless her. <laughs> Thank you so much for accepting to be a guest on my podcast, Sushandrika. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow me at, at Beats on Twitter and Instagram for all dowdy updates. As all podcasts will tell you, all rates and reviews will be super welcome. And do share the podcast with your friends or on your socials. Hashtag DowdyPod. I would also like to know your pics of people who, to you, are examples of bravery. Share them on your reviews or tweet them at me. Huge, huge thank you to Champagne for the podcast jingle and a bunch of other things that are podcast related. If you've enjoyed listening to Dowdy, have some spare to give, and would like to support me and help me improve on my tech and skills, all tips are welcome through PayPal and Coffee on at Mariana's Beats. I've been Mariana Pejo. Until next week.